0: Hi, this is SD, host of the Friday a public affair. I hope you help us by contributing to W O R T, and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six foot six above sea level I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level Low power frequency, radio modulation The big sound from underground Another No fire. change without struggle No one, no in, one power in power ain't power. giving up, up nothing up. No change without struggle
1: No one, no in, struggle. In, no one in power, power.
0: W-O-R-T, 89.9 FM, listener-sponsored community radio, Madison, Wisconsin. And hello, welcome to A Public Affair. I am Esti Dinor, good to be back with you in person. We have a two-part show today. In the second part, we will be talking about Cop City Fitchburg. You may have heard a little bit about it recently. We'll explore it a little more, but we're starting with William Branson. He is an American public policy physician and activist known for his involvement in the deinstitutionalization of Willowbrook State School in the early 1970s. In 1975, Bronston became the medical director of the Department of Developmental Disabilities at the California Department of Health. He's here today so we can discuss his important book, Public Hostage, Public Ransom, Ending Institutional America. And hello, Bill, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Good morning, Esty, and thank you very much. I'm very honored.
0: Let's, um, let's start with the title of the book. What do you mean by public Hostage, public, ransom. Who, who is the hostage? What is the ransom?
1: Well, the hostage is really all of us that wind up as we age in institutional settings, in congregate, segregated facilities, nursing homes, supported living, hospice, and so forth. And the reason I talk about that is because we are funded by federal dollars, which are the ransom money but we never are liberated once we are put into institutions and in the book i'm dealing with the original largest institution in america six thousand uh beds were in that institution uh filled with the most wretched people you can imagine that were the unwanted the surplus population in new york state and new jersey and the surrounding area that essentially had special needs They were people with mental retardation, autism, epilepsy, uh, uh, cerebral palsy, and the like. And at that time, there was no, no community-based services that could handle and essentially uh, support and habilitate people that were different. Uh, No one, two-bed, three-bed, four-bed situations. The only services that the state of New York provided – to the unwanted community were large institutions starting at 200 beds and going up to Willowbrook to 6,000 beds. And that, that was entirely funded by federal, Medicaid, and state New York matching money that essentially kept people in the most squalid conditions imaginable as a way of bringing dollars in because they would essentially get two to $300 a day for people that were in the institution from Medicaid money, but only spent about $20 a day in order to handle people as long as they could keep them alive so that they could continue to draw public ransom as public hostages in the state of New York and around the country at that time.
0: Okay, so that's, that's a lot to untangle here. Um, first of all, why... Why was that? Why, is, why was it that uh, parents sent their children to an institution like that? Why did they keep them there? Because I understand they were able to visit. Um, explain, explain all of that, please.
1: Yes, thank you for that question because I think it's very relevant. First of all, we were coming out of an era where eugenics, that is uh, attempting to protect the general population from the possible negative impact of disabled people in the population was very uh, dominant. And the medical community was almost uniformly committed to advising families, if they had a kid with a congenital problem at birth or whatever, to advise the family to put the kid away, quote unquote, and to have another kid and to forget about that kid. And at the time, Willowbrook was called a state school and families had no idea in the world what they were surrendering their relative to and were never allowed into any of the buildings when they might come to visit. So that you had a situation where when a child was born with a special need or an individual was essentially creating a problem in the society that needed handling by the, by the, uh, the, the society, people were recommended to put their kid at Willowbrook. When they came there, they were told, don't visit for at least three months. Let the kid, quote, accommodate to the situation, because, of course, it was very traumatic to separate a child from their family. The families had no idea in the world what it was that they were relinquishing their child to or their relative to, putting them into these gargantuan institutions that were absolutely violent in every conceivable way imaginable. You can imagine essentially taking a human being and putting them into a stone building, into stone wards, no furniture, no programming, inadequate food, inadequate clothing, overwhelming tranquilizing drugs in order to maintain control because there was only two to three workers maximum to handle 50 people on a ward and that they are there forever. They are never matriculated back into society because the institution has no intention or capability of moving them because what's behind the institution is economic issues that essentially are remote from the policies that the clinicians essentially were charged to handle the governor and his brother who essentially was the head of most of the large financial institutions in New York David and Nelson Rockefeller essentially generated a billion dollars of money to be matched to build public systems in the state of New York. Once those systems and contracts were let, the issue of, of staffing those programs and providing the kind of progressive health care support services and habilitation support was absolutely a, a side thought. And so people were crowded into these institutions with the minimum amount of support to maintain them for as long as possible. Now, if you want to compare, look at what all of us are dealing with with our elder families that become dependent, either cognitively or physically or medically, and we have to go to work, and we can't necessarily manage on a 24-7 basis handling a dependent relative in our homes that have gotten older. Well, it's exactly the same thing that existed then with With people with with developmental and 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 uh, and 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 disability you know kind of conditions. So here we are in a situation where all of us have to struggle with how to handle a dependent relative, an elder relative, which was identical to what was happening then, where people had to handle young children with special needs and they could not afford to keep them at home, could not cope with them at home, didn't have the necessary community-based staff, and had no option for any kind of home-like alternative to essentially place and access their beloved relatives.
0: Okay, so let me ask you two questions in one. Um, The book has uh, quite a few photos that are very shocking, Um, And so I would like you to describe the photo that you have on the cover. You have it also uh, on a bigger scale later in the book and and explain what it is that we see and then tell me if I understand correctly that what you're saying is that um, this basically torture of children and adults too Um, was part of a scheme to make profit?
1: The reason I put the photographs in the book to begin with, the 80 photographs that are in the book that are essentially clustered in four photo chapters, one of them is called Living Death Alone, one is called From People to Things, one is called Injuries, and one is called The Radiator was to show the violence of the institution, not, not the spectacle or grotesqueness of differentness, but to just show the sheer violence of the institution. The cover picture is a, is a picture of the steel entry door that essentially existed for all of the 60 buildings that were on the grounds of the institution, essentially incarcerating the residents. And through the window window, of that door is a young woman that I discovered when I was assigned to that building to begin taking care of the people there who had been in that room in isolation for three years on a level of tranquilizing drugs that would have essentially made a horse unconscious. And she was kept there because at one point she bit a worker and was essentially consigned to isolation, straitjacket and tranquilization, which was really the common solution to handling activist residents in the institution. And she's laying there on the floor, and she had been there for three years, and, and the workers were terrified of her because of the, uh, the, 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 the stigma that, that came from her biting one of them. And it took me about two months to essentially work with the staff and to get her out of that room and to get her off the tranquilization, because she was just, at that time, a 16-year-old girl, you know. And, and what she's wearing, essentially, that flimsy, uh, you know, raggedy you know, ca- kind of, kind of a dress is what was essentially assigned to most of the people in the institution. I was responsible by that time for 1,000 women a day in four uh, adjacent buildings uh, in the institution. Uh, And it it was absolutely uh, shocking. The photographs are to show the violence of congregated, segregated, institutional living that essentially interferes in the longevity and the liberty of the people that are essentially institutionalized. That's why the institutional model in America must be ended, it must be replaced by universal, rightful, comprehensive, compassionate, single-payer health care. That is the strategic solution that would alter our longevity uh, statistics because we're now 41st in the world in terms of living a period of time, length of, of living, which is absolutely shocking when you consider that we're the wealthiest country and pay twice as much in our medical market system as any other country on earth.
0: Yeah. yeah, And of course, I will want to get back to um, the solutions before we are done here. But um, staying back here in Willowbrook for a a little bit more, um, again, some of the photos or really there's a whole bunch of photos there of children and adults with head and face injuries and and scars. Um, What is that about? And also, let's start with that.
1: Imagine, imagine being put into a space with 50 other people. No furniture, no programming, no access to getting outside, horrendous slop food, inadequate clothing, inadequate hygiene for the rest of your life. Every day, every week, every month, every year, nothingness, plain nothingness and you are essentially uh, tranquilized to the point of, of uh, insensibility in order to make you manageable and to sleep on the floor in the filth uh, for a lifetime. What happens is, is that people react to that. Life is a very dynamic, energy-filled phenomenon that, that we are. And so there was an enormous amount of violence and, and, and chair-throwing and, 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 and beating, you know, that happened that resulted in terrible, persistent injuries. I was constantly being called to suture major gashes in people's scalps, in their backs, in, in, in their faces as a result of the daily violence in this profoundly boring Profoundly empty, profoundly violent environment that people were consigned to, completely invisible to the community, completely unknown. Until we were able to engineer the media coverage and the the, the help of Geraldo Rivera at the time who came in to do an expose, a, a, a television expose on ABC television that was absolutely uh, transforming that resulted in the work that we did to essentially organize a federal class action lawsuit for crimes against humanity, against the governor and the state for administering this American concentration camp that led to its ultimate closure and essentially uh, convergence into a, a New York State uh, university.
0: Yeah. So just, just before we get to that, let me ask you another question. Yeah, um, yeah. Some of our listeners might remember actually us talking about Willowbrook before, Um, because in late 2021 I talked with Professor Leslie A. Halpern about the book Dangerous Medicine, the story behind human experiments with hepatitis and part of it happened at Willowbrook. Tell us about that.
1: Well, you have a population that is invisible, that is hidden, and that is essentially uh, uh, accessible to unethical medical research. The top virologists in the world were funded by the Department of Defense to develop vaccines for the war at that time. And one of them was hepatitis. Another one was uh, 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 German measles. And the, 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 the residents of Willowbrook were essentially used without permission, without uh, uh, awareness of the experimental Uh, uh, vaccines that were being essentially evaluated with no idea on the part of the researchers of the negative consequences of those vaccines. But because this was a population that had no voice, had no representation, had no advocacy, they were a setup to be essentially exploited and used as research uh, 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 entities for this virology research. The same thing from the Tuskegee uh, 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 yeah. uh, soldiers that were there that were essentially allowed to, to have syphilis you know, uh, uh, develop in their systems to see what the pathology of syphilis was. I mean, the, 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 the callousness and the self-interest of many of these elegant medical researchers Uh, really has to be exposed. And, And it only comes out when a scandal arises, and then you begin to see it. But there is no machinery in our culture to block that kind of thing from happening when it happens behind the scenes in invisible, you know, and unwanted populations. Yeah, my
0: guest is William Bronston, an American public policy physician and activist who was pivotal to the deinstitutionalization of Willowbrook State School. So let's get to that, Bill. Um, How did the campaign start to uh, let the world know about what was going on? and, And how did change happen?
1: Well, the first thing when I got there, I mean, I was a, a unique physician in the place. I was very highly trained in, uh, in, in Los Angeles at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles by the top uh, worker in the field of developmental disability care. Uh, his name was Dr. Richard Koch. And when I, when I went to New York, I went there after my psychiatric residency at Menninger's. Uh, I got this job at Willowbrook uh, because I felt that I was familiar with the kind of of, uh, patients and clients and residents that were there and was already highly oriented towards deinstitutionalization. The whole campaign at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles was to support families in the most elegant way to keep their kids at home and not to institutionalize them, which was the same problem in, in, in California, of course, as in New York. Anyway, uh, the the situation there uh, was was really so horrid that I began setting up training programs for my workers in who were staffing the, my my wards, and talking with the parents and bringing the parents into the buildings to see why their child was being essentially destroyed. You know, day after day, when they would come to visit, whenever they would come to see that there were terrible injuries and and terrible. Uh, a regression of behavior that occurred in this barren and and violent situation and little by little I began introducing the parents to each other, and we began having parent meetings on the wards that I was responsible for, as was a colleague of mine that I recruited to work with me in the institution, because there, there were so many buildings, it was such a difficult kind of structure to try and organize. And so to find progressive workers and caring workers and parents who had no idea in the world. That, that there was something that was commonly shared by hundreds of other families, thousands of other families that were, that were uh, the, the, the families behind the people that were incarcerated at Willowbrook was really a, a tremendous breakthrough. And as the families began to understand that it didn't have to be that way, that there had to be a responsibility. These were taxpayers. The system was essentially funded through public tax money, Medicaid, Medicare, uh, and, 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 and other uh, costs that were levied against wealthier families. And as they began to confront the institution, the institution administrators who were very, very um, uh, arrogant, and, and very you know, bloviated that the, there, there was an effort on the part of the administration to quash the mobilization. And so they established a policy blocking Mike and I, my my, my colleague, Michael, Dr. Michael Wilkins and I, from holding meetings in the institution of families. And yeah. it resulted in the families beginning to organize and confront the institution, which led... Uh, the director to fire my colleague, which led then to us calling Geraldo, who was a beloved friend of ours. We were working on other projects in Staten Island at the time, uh, human rights projects with him, and he had just gotten his job at, at ABC television. And he came in with a camera and did this incredible expose that actually blew the top off of the ratings in New York and around the country. And as a result of his passionate outrage at what he saw and experienced and the the brilliant photography that he did of the squalor and 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 the horror of the institution and the shrieking sound and only described the smells you know, because that was not something that you could actually put through on television, but it was compelling. And the result was that a huge mobilization happened and we were able to, to recruit all the top lawyers on the eastern seaboard that had begun to file unique class action lawsuits against states for running these institutions that essentially were killing people from uh, the, the kind of, of, of uh of of, of abandonment the the kind of indifference the kind of violence that the institution uh, and generated and and the, the result of that was was an enormous campaign where everybody in the world began coming to visit willowbrook in order to expose it and they wanted to fix it and we wanted to do everything in our power to block them from fixing an unfixable situation and to end yeah. institutionalization, as was being practiced at that time throughout the country, we wound up in class action lawsuits in 37 states after we mounted the Willowbrook lawsuit.
0: Yeah. So um, I, you know, I, I I suppose really many thousands or millions of people. Um, we're saved that way, and and um, I want to thank you for uh, your important role in all of that. I myself have a young um relative who suffers from epilepsy, an absolutely brilliant child, um, very successful in many different parts of his life, but with epilepsy. And the thought of someone like that ending. Up in, in a situation like this is, is just absolutely horrifying to me. So um, thank you. And um, I want to ask you then about the role of Justice Ruth Ginsburg in um, a Supreme Court decision called Ormstead that um, actually changed the legality of, of places like that,
1: correct? Exactly. What happened was that and my book describes this in one of the, the the latter chapters in the book, the whole history of the development of the campaign to liberate people with special needs from the kind of incarceration and dehumanization that had been their their experience over the the, the previous you know decades. Uh, the justice essentially ruled that people had a right to education a right to care in the community and a right to individualized services that essentially obstructed the opportunity of states or private systems in order to concentrate and, uh, segregate and, 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 uh, and violate these folks. Uh, and you know, the fact that you have a relative, everybody listening has a, everybody listening has a relative that sooner or later is going to be caught up in the institutional system that we are suffering in our culture. Medicaid has plowed 6 trillion dollars into institutionalizing our society for over 50 years for 60 years and and people can't even remember what it was like when we took our dependent members of society whether they had they were youth with developmental disabilities of one sort or another or people with significant mental health problems or people that were just growing older and essentially incarcerated them because we had no alternative due to the singular funding of care for people who needed services with tax dollars. And so you, you have a situation here in our society where people feel essentially alone, isolated, and and confounded about how to deal with their dependent relatives. And the solution to that is we need universal single-payer health care that essentially ends once and for all the profit-driven foundation of the medical market system and essentially controls the pharmaceutical, insurance, insurance, and hospital cartels that are expanding their control and ownership of the medical delivery system in order to have a rightful, comprehensive health care system that would change the way we see each other, treat each other, and essentially serve each other and finance uh, medical services. Ending Medicaid long-term care is absolutely a critical agenda a policy agenda that the general public must pursue in order to free themselves of the violence and dehumanization and exploitation uh, that currently exists universally in America today unless you're fabulously wealthy. I, for example, have been paying close to $800 a month in terms of a, uh, a fund that would have essentially covered my long-term care uh, management as I age. I'm 84, so you know I only have so much time on the clock here in terms of this time of my life. And the state of California just notified me that it could no longer support that insurance policy and that they had to return the money that I had put into the system for 20 years uh, and, and for me to solve the problem of my long-term care uh, services on my own without giving me more than 80% of what I paid in without any of the, uh, of the interest that had been accruing for over a hundred thousand dollars that I had put in. And so all of a sudden I'm faced with a situation, which I knew when I was younger, I would be faced with that. I had to somehow advocate to change Americans commitment to the way in which dependency and people not in the workforce would be served and cherished nurtured essentially uh, comforted and cared for and served in our culture that is one of the most strategic issues in conjunction with ending poverty and dealing with the climate crisis that we're faced with those three issues are interrelated and we must look at the story of public hostage public ransom as a harbinger story that essentially relentlessly leads to the strategic solution, which I lay out in detail in my book.
0: Yeah, yeah, because I'm thinking, so you and the people you worked with have um, made monumental changes, and yet it seems like the more things change, the more they stay the same, that there's still uh, moneyed interests who... um, who, who want to keep um, situations like that alive because they make a lot of money. We talked some time ago also with um, a person who talked to us about how it is hedge funds that now own most of these uh, congregated exactly. um, institutions exactly right. for elders. So um, how just explain how I think that most of our listeners support single payer for obvious other reasons, but explain how that could also solve this problem.
1: Well, what we're looking for is to have a system where we have a single trust fund at a state level and at the national level that has 100% of all medical service dollars in that one trust fund. People would then have a card, like a social security card or whatever, and they could go to any health care provider. License provider, anywhere of their choice, anytime, anywhere for anything with no limited network and get treated and give the card to the vendor. The vendor would then bill the trust fund, which would pay them back within 30 days. And that essentially would end the situation. People would have to probably pay about two and a half percent more uh, of their federal and state taxes, which would be minuscule compared to what they now have to pay in terms of premiums, copays, deductibles, and hidden billing. What's been happening is that our medical market system has become more and more relentlessly and aggressively privatized by large financial institutions. We have just barely begun to open the door to even negotiate around around drug prices in in the recent uh, legislation this this last year from this administration, which is being fought by the pharmaceutical industry. America pays 100% for drugs compared to any place else in the world. Every place else in the world pays significantly less for the same medicines that we do in this country because there is no legal basis for us to challenge the cartels that essentially are consolidating in terms of increasing monopolization of the economy, which essentially impacts our well being. The problem is that the general public, we the people, don't understand the common interest that we have in working together in a democratic society to challenge and alter the delivery system. And to consolidate all the money into a public trust fund at the state and federal level that would cover all of our health care needs administered by the public health profession, not the medical profession. The medical profession, forever and ever and ever, has been opposed to universal single payer health care because it is a chargeable, fee based system that essentially is controlled by what the doctors decide to charge. In a single-payer system, rates for everything would be negotiated at the front end. Every institution, every clinic, every, every medical program, every hospital would have a global budget that would be annually renegotiated. They would get quarterly funding to cover everything and there could not be this artificial, grift-driven inflation that is going on with insurance, with the pharmaceutical industry, and with the god-awful hospital billing system, which you cannot verify in any way. The complexity of billing in our medical market system is so staggeringly complicated that if you challenge what you are being billed, it is very difficult for the provider to justify what it is that that you're getting, whether it's a $50 aspirin or a $20 Band-Aid or a a multi-thousand-dollar pill. I have a a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I have medicine that I take that costs my insurance system $15,000 a month. I mean, that is an obscenity. It's an obscenity. You know, and if I didn't have that coverage, I would just die. I mean, there would be no question about it. And everybody out there is totally insecure and terrified in their heart of hearts of not being able to cope with something that might happen, whether it's an accident where they fracture something or whether it's something that comes from increasing age and debility. We must change, democratize, and humanize our healthcare system under the aegis of prevention, early intervention, and put the money at the front end of wellness as opposed to the back end of death making.
0: Yeah. Well, William Bronson, American public policy physician and activist, the book we uh, have discussed that he has written is Public Hostage, Public Ransom. Ending Institutional America. Thank you so much Bill for um, your work and for the book and for joining us today. I appreciate it.
1: I'm very grateful Esti, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care.
0: Thanks, you too. And uh, we are going straight to um, Fitchburg and to Tara Stangler who is a local Korean American organizer who has been organizing across the Midwest for almost the last decade. Although she organizes across issues, her main focus is on abolition and alternatives to police policing. When she's not organizing, she's either working as the Harm Reduction Services Director at Outreach LGBTQ plus Community Center or spending time in community and hello Tara. Thank you for joining us today Tara yep. Tara are you with us? I should be Okay, yeah, I can hear you now very good. Thank you. Um, somehow it feels to me like the issue we were just discussing and the issue we're about to discuss um, are connected. I'm curious to hear if you think so too. But basically, we have you here to talk about um, what's coming to be known as uh, Cop City Fitchburg. What is, what is it? Yeah,
2: so I'm glad that you asked. Uh, what we're looking at right now with Cop City and Fitchburg is a proposed building uh, that's right now in the proposal phase um the schematic design is going to be voted on on tuesday the 13th at fitchburg's uh common or city council meeting basically what this building is is a seventy-four thousand five hundred sixty square foot uh, police facility is how they're framing it um, this police facility is an attempt to move the police out of where they currently are which is in city hall because they're saying they don't have enough space um and they're trying to build a building that like quote unquote should last them for the next 20 years um right now the cost for this building is 49.2 million dollars to construct uh this has been the i think the third iteration of the amount of money it's supposed to cost um the last that this was budgeted, I believe, was 2021, where it was at 35 million dollars. Um, they're looking at like a 639 thousand dollar cost per year to operate the building. Um, and this, the the main focus of why this relates so heavily to the movement that we see in Atlanta with Cop City, is because one of the main additions to this building that is causing an increase in the price is a defensive NRS tactics or DAAT training area. Um, what they're looking at right now is they want to have this huge, uh, I believe it's like a 10-lane firing range. Um, so they're calling it a tactical training bay with live fire capabilities. But for folks who are not familiar with you know, the terminology in that, what it means is just that they want an indoor 10-lane firing range um, they want their own multi-purpose fitness room. They keep referring to it as like a wrestling room. Um, the walls are padded. It's supposed to teach them, you know, proper ways to essentially brutalize our community, similar to any of the other uh, so-called like training areas. Um, I believe every single one of them involves some way that would allow them to privately teach officers um, how to brutalize the community. So that's kind of what we're looking at with this building
0: and And I understand that the training facility that they're looking at is in the heart of the most diverse Fitchburg neighborhood. First of all, is that correct and secondly, do you think that's significant? Do you think um that's that's an important uh point to um discuss
2: so I think. Right now, for folks that are not familiar with where it is, uh, there's the city hall building and there's the public library building. And then across the street from the public library is where they're looking to put this in. I believe it's like Lacey and Fitch Hat, Fish Hatch. Um, mm-hmm. I can't speak to it being the most diverse area. I do know that it is Fitchburg, which is a continuously growing population. One of the things that they like to keep, you know, framing is that it's the fastest growing city in the state of Wisconsin, um, which, you know can be, in my opinion, can be looked at in a very different light when you look at it in terms of population comparison to a place like the city of Milwaukee or the city of Madison. Um, I do think that it is really important, though, that we're looking at this from the perspective of, you know, Fitchburg being a diverse community community because of the issues that happen with policing um, one of the main things that the police officers um, in what I will frame as being like propaganda or an attempt to like make themselves look better, make it look necessary make themselves look good um, is that they're really pushing for this from the perspective of police need more training um, and the thing that they are ignoring is that police have training police across the states have training um, I'm from the Twin Cities area I know, a lot about the Minneapolis Police Department, as I'm sure a lot of the world does now, Um, they get extensive training that that didn't stop the fact that George Floyd was killed. You know, we look at places like Ferguson. They have extensive training that didn't stop the fact that Mike Brown was killed. Um, Training does not fix an officer. Training cannot fix the corruption of a system that was created from the the, uh, concept of slave catching. Um, And so they're really trying to act like, you know, well, we would be the exception if we just had more training. um, Some of the things that they brought up in their, like, public information settings is they literally talked about Uvalde, and they said, well, if they would have had more training, you know, this would have never happened. Um, They brought up the instance with Tim Potter, who murdered Dante Wright in Brooklyn, Minnesota, um, where she claimed that she mistook her gun for a taser um, and shot and killed Dante Uh, You know, these these officers had training. It it is not a matter of training that can protect our communities. It is not going to stop the fact that the brutalization happens at, you know, disproportionately high uh, percentages for black, indigenous and uh, specifically like Latina community members. Um, And so when we're looking at this, you know, diversity does play a huge role in it. There is a reason why, you know, the city of Fitchburg is leaning toward the understanding that well as the population grows the police force also needs to grow um because it's pretty assumptive that you know well if there's more people here more crime will happen so we definitely need to have more trained officers and i'm like or Mm. we could you know put the resources into community spaces and into trainings for like social workers who can go on to calls rather than cops um so it's, it's been a wild time listening to some of the justifications they've made for why they need this building
0: Yeah. So um, one of the reasons I feel that uh, both issues today are connected is that we are talking about um, huge infusions of money from the taxpayers' um, uh, roles into things that uh, end up being definitely not supportive of those taxpayers. So. I wonder to the degree that you know um, who who is supporting this effort and um, are there moneyed people behind that? Is there? I'm curious about you know you always have to um, look at the money, right? Uh, What do we know about that?
2: So, what we know now is that they are looking to, it's a, they, so if you've been to any of the public information hearings, which if you haven't, I highly recommend going onto the Fitchburg City YouTube page and watching some of them. Um, the presentation that they give is about an hour and 10 to hour and 15 minutes long. Um, it, it is quite long. It is quite hard to listen to. Um, so, they. Didn't actually have the like financial person at the meetings. What they had this person do is, um, I believe her name is Misty. She recorded a video where she explained, you know, where's the funding coming from for this project? How are we borrowing the money? Um, And from my understanding, what's going on is they're looking at a uh, a budget that's coming from taxpayer dollars, as well as like the idea that it could come from grants. So one of the things that they were really trying to push for at this meeting, um, being that the building is now $49.2 million is that, well, you know, part of the reason why it's this expensive is because we're applying for this grant that would fund the, um, the addition of like the training facility with the, you know, quote unquote wrestling room and quote unquote tactical bay. Um, and so if they don't get this grant, however, they didn't mention that they were gonna change the idea from taking this training bay out or taking this um, uh, tactical bay out. They, they just kind of left it up in the air. And right now, I think the only people that they really considered when they were doing the, you know, how will this impact you study um, was the average homeowner, which I think they put at $382,000 uh, in terms of property tax, things like that. Um, and looking at, like, the percentages and the amount of money that that would come from, and they try to, like, make it sound like a really low-ball number. However, Fitchburg is incredibly diverse in terms of, like, the way that the housing is, and a lot of folks do live in apartments. So when we raise these property, or these property tax increases, not only is it going to affect the average homeowner, but it's also going to affect the average renter because the property tax for these buildings that these rental uh, complexes are built on is also going to go up, And we all know landlords, landlords are not going to front that cost. The the landlord will never, you know, be like, oh, well, because my property tax went up, I'll cover that for sure. What's going to end up happening is it's going to raise the rent for every single person in that, in that building um, who, you know, might be in an affordable housing unit who cannot afford to have their rent raised any more than it already is because rent is ridiculous. Um, And for property owners, you know, taxes, kind of ride in waves in terms of like how property tax works with like inflation and all of the other um, additional parts that can influence taxes, their cost will eventually go down. However, for the renters, the the cost will not go down because a a landlord is not going to bring your rent down just because the property tax went down. They're going to keep it at the exact same amount of money that it is so that they can continue to sit and be making the exact same amount of money. Um, So Mm -hmm. right now we're looking at like a capital budget thing where they're talking about like bonds and things that they can take out for capital projects specifically and not operating costs. Um, But the thing that they really avoided talking about is, yes, the, the money that they have is for a capital project. It cannot be used for operating costs, like hiring more people. But what it can be used for is, purchasing any other type of building this could be used i know freedom inc uh and looking at their post they talked about like a free daycare facility a community facility a youth shelter things that would actually benefit the community things that would actually provide resources things that actually might help mitigate some of the issues that like lead to you know the the quote-unquote necessity that police officers feel they are in the community um but they didn't talk about that at all they just talked about well we can't change the money within our own uses, like, the police or for this police facility, um, we can we can only use it for, like, the infrastructure of the building. And it's like, well, we don't need this building. What we need is community resources, and y'all are not a community resource.
0: Yeah. And, well, you mentioned uh, Freedom, Inc., uh, which is a Madison-based organization. And I think it's important for our listeners to understand that um, if this is built, um I expect um, the Madison Police Department and the Sheriff's Department and, and many other departments will be training there, so it will affect Madison and other communities and possibly neighboring states. Um, so, what? Um, how? How do you expect it to? affect all of us who are outside of Fitchburg? And really, I mean, you said it's on fish hatchery. I I don't know where Madison ends and Fitchburg starts. It's all so very close to each other. So how will it affect others? And um, how can we in Madison help you?
2: Yeah, so I'm actually located in Madison as well. Um, A lot of my efforts have just been talking to folks in Fitchburg and really helping get the information out there. So I come from this perspective of being a person who lives in Madison who, through my job, works with a lot of folks from Fitchburg. Um, Mm -hmm. This is an issue that's going to affect every single locality within Dane County and beyond um, because Right now, the Madison Police Department is the only one with an additional indoor firing range. um, And the Sheriff's Department has a, like, outdoor firing range. So the, the complaint that the Fitchburg Police Department had that they were trying to push forward was that, well, they needed their own training facility because they have to do all of these training hours for their officers. And, you know, they have to book out in advance and they have to plan for at least 20 days of training in an already overbooked facility and all of these other things. And so adding this additional facility that they're trying to build is is really just putting them in the the position to be the ones who can not only get extensive training, but can bring in other police departments. Um, One of the big things that I know my friends and I as activists are pretty concerned about is like, what capacity is this training facility going to be used to kind of like learn how to suppress protesters? Um, yes. Because of how like large this area is, and because of the agencies that they would be partnering with. I mean, we saw in 2020 the the word the word that the police departments kept using is that they were providing mutual aid for each other. You know, they were they were showing up and helping. Specifically in Madison. And so, what this would provide is an additional space to train each other on how to brutalize people. Um, And the really difficult part is, you know, we live in some of the most racially disparate cities in the United States, living in Wisconsin between Madison and Milwaukee. Um, And so, what you're going to end up having is a lot of cops who are coming to this area from, you know, places like up in northern Wisconsin or you know, wherever across to come work for these police departments that might not have ever interacted with a person of color in their life. And so when you're giving this like warrior mentality in terms of like the training, and I know they tried to emphasize that they don't do that kind of training, but any kind of training where you think that the solution is a gun in this sense is, is, in my mind, warrior mentality. Mm -hmm. So it's really going to impact the rest of us because it's giving an additional training facility where they can do more specialized training in an enclosed environment where we actually don't know what's going on in them. We we have no idea, you know, what they're teaching, what they're training. They, they talk about transparency, but like one of the points that I like to bring up in terms of transparency is they are not being transparent about who their chief of police is. Alfonso Morales is the chief of police in the city of Fitchburg is in Fitchburg because in 2021, He was formerly the chief of police in the city of Milwaukee, but in 2021 was unanimously voted down by the uh, fire and police commission. Um, So he came to Fitchburg as a disgraced, you know, or as a demoted uh, police officer who is now going to be headwaying a program like this, who's coming from Milwaukee, which is an already pretty militarized police force into a city like Fitchburg, who's going to have all of this money, all of this space to buy all of this equipment and really what it's going to do is it's going to militarize a police force in a predominantly white area that's going to feed on a lot of, like, white fear about, like, you know, well, black and brown folks are moving in. There's obviously going to be an increase in crime and a lot of the other things that are based in, like, incredibly harmful racial stereotypes. Um, and there's going to be a lot of police officers who are going to be trained in a way that emboldens them to brutalize these communities across Dane really? County.
0: Yeah. Well, Tara, please um, let our listeners know where they can find more information. We, of course, will keep uh, reporting on it and checking on it and, you know, probably have you again in a few months. But where in the meantime can people find more information and figure out what they can do about it?
2: Yeah, so some of the great places to look for information right now are specifically from other black and brown-led organizations. Um, so Freedom Inc. for folks in the Dane County area has been a really great one for providing resources, information. They're going to be doing a teach-in this, uh, whatever day the 10th is, actually. So, okay, so this Saturday on Zoom, you can find all of that information online mm. currently. Um, And then social media generally is where I have been posting everything, Um, and I haven't seen a lot of other folks posting consistently about it, so if folks want to find me on social media to see what's going on, what's being said, um, if you just look up my first and last name, which is Tara Stangler, Uh, you can find any kind of updates I post about it.
0: All right, and Tara is a local Korean-American organizer. She has been organizing across the Midwest, and now she is organizing about Cop City Fitchburg. Thank you so very much, Tara, for joining us and for your work. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye-bye. And thank you to Jade and Summer. I'm Esti Dinor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye.